Alright, good morning. Today is Wednesday, March 3rd, and uh, this is uh, episode 3, uh, Reading Changsu. Changsu. And <clears throat> here, continuing the, and concluding the introduction to a revised translation by Burton Watson, who uh, I think is a very fine scholar, pretty much at the level of Arthur Whaley. Uh, whose uh, translation of uh, Dao De Ching, I think, is one of the best, for sure, if not the best, around. And uh, in the middle of the introduction, last time, closed on page 37 to start 38, I want to backtrack a bit to page 36, simply to read the last comments, the, the highlight <clears throat> Some of his comments on page 37 before we jump to the new on 38 and then conclude the introduction and possibly read chapter one of the book today. Um, maybe, maybe not, we'll see. Um, Burton Watson is here explaining um, the subtleties and intricacies, <laughs> complexities of doing translation and particularly doing translation from classical Chinese works uh, that are abstruse and uh, contested in terms of some of the words and some of the versions of the original text that they're working from. And he's particularly working from a text from uh, 4th century or 3rd century uh, AD, so 1700 years ago, uh, a commentary compilation uh, done 1700 years ago by Guoshang, I think, on the earlier text of Zhuangzi, which was uh, probably, <clears throat> I don't know, 2nd, 3rd century BC, uh, be, before Common Era, before Yeshua, so 22, 2300 years ago is the text, uh, which came into a, a few different forms that were um, emended, um, uh, collated, compiled, organized by Guoshang, I think, uh, 20, uh, 1700 years ago or so. So th this is um, useful for all of us um, reading translation of ancient text, whether it's uh, Pali Canon Buddhism or, you know, Patanjali <laughs> or Yoga Sutras or Yi Jing or Tao Te Ching or Zhuangzi or Heraclitus even. And what you see is that translators have different abilities uh, of skill and uh, spiritual maturity or personal development. And so there are translators who um, make a mess of it <laughs> and those that do great, I think. And that's the, the origin of the term lost in translation. Much is commonly lost in translation. So I want to just jump in. Yeah, the text reading through the introduction here explains my points <laughs> better than I can. So bottom page 36, um, just a second, uh, <clears throat> uh, some points that he made in terms of the text and the translation. He said, Burton Watson, page uh, 36, as has already been suggested, Zhuangzi, though he writes in prose, uses words in the manner of a poet particularly in the lyrical descriptions of the Wei or the Tao, the Wei, the Tao, or the Taoist sage, like the Zhenren, where meaning often takes second place to sound and emotive force. But we can understand that sound, the nature of the words he's using in their sound and force, is part of the meaning. <clears throat> he goes on, in the broader sense of the word, his work is in fact one of the greatest poems of ancient China. For this reason, it seems to me particularly important to stick as closely as possible to the precise wording and imagery of the Chinese. For example, in section 5, or chapter 5, there's a passage in which Confucius is pictured, it's probably, you know, an it's an allegory, it's a story, it's not perhaps, probably not literal, passage in which Confucius is pictured discussing the need to harmonize with and delight in all the manifold ups and downs of human existence and to, quote, master them and never be at a loss for joy, end quote, adding that one should, quote, make it be spring with everything, end quote. That phrase, make it be spring with everything, 
uh, comes from literal <laughs> a literal reading of a couple of characters. And now he'll get into how he translates it, what it was literally, and how some others translated that, and we can see how much we're losing commonly in translation. Burton Watson goes on. This last phrase, literally, with things make spring, not make it be spring with everything. With things make spring. Is that too hard for people? The last phrase, he continues, with things make spring, is an example of the highly poetic language that Zhongzi employs in such passages and for which he's justly admired. To render the phrase as, quote, live in peace with mankind, from Herbert Giles, or, quote, be kind with things, end quote, from Feng Lulan, not only blurs the image of the original beyond recognition, but suggests that Zhongzi is mouthing platitudes when in fact he's using the Chinese language as had never been used before. <clears throat> and so translators bringing the text down to their own level of understanding, <laughs> not knowing that they're not understanding the original or not appreciating it in some sense. And uh, it comes out to us as uh, what what is also termed fake Buddha quotes. If you look online, there's a whole ma- large website de- dedicated to fake Buddha quotes. Many of them are useful pieces of wisdom, useful teaching, but they're not from Gautama. They're not in the Pali Canon. Sorry. And they sound like platitudes, many of them. Absolutely. And anybody who knows Pali Canon to some degree or Buddhism well enough would know that they're fake. And Gautama didn't say that and didn't speak that way. But it may be similar. It may be useful. But it sounds kind of um, um, modern. And lots of people don't know uh, that they're using a fake quote. <coughs> and so, he goes on, no other text of early times, with the possible exception of the Zhuan, so fully exploits the beauties of ancient Chinese, its vigor, economy, its richness and symmetry, and it is for this reason that I've chosen to render the wording of the original as closely as possible. Even though the English that results may at times sound somewhat strange. Zhangzi uses words in unconventional ways, and he deserves a translation that at least attempts to do justice to his imaginativeness, or do justice to the original words. How about that? So the new teaching, new material, page 38, he continues, I have not hesitated to make free use of the colloquialisms, kind of common wordings, um, and almost like slang, which is a great part of the Zhongzi, as the Zhongzi is in, the, in a great part in the form of informal dialogues, or of slang, meaning he's not hesitated to make free use of slang. He goes on, I do so, however, not in order to create a jazzy effect, but because such words of construction seem to me to get closer to the original than formal, more formal English could. I've also tried to suggest some of the auditory effects and wordplays of the original. Frequently, Zhangzi takes a single word such as knowledge, or a pair such as heaven and man, and plays at great length on their various usages, usages and shades of meaning, employing them now as nouns, later as verbs. In order to follow the continuity of such passages, the reader must realize that it is a single word that's being played with. And I have therefore worked to preserve this unity in translation, though it may lead at times to a certain amount of awkwardness and pleonasm. Pleonasm means uh, excessive use of words where it's unnecessary. The alliterative and rhyming binomes, uh, polarities or pairs, that contribute so much to the vividness of ancient Chinese, I have tried to suggest by the use of similar devices in English though I have employed them with somewhat less frequency than has the original, lest they become obtrusive, or obstruse, obtrusive, meaning uh, blocking. And so he's using alliteration and rhyming, but not too much. So it's quite a challenge to be a translator. He goes on, I have not attempted to, re- to reproduce the occasional rhymed passages, uh, so he's not trying to make rhyming passages merely pointing out their existence in notes, since rhyme in present-day English 
unless used with great skill, has a tendency, it seems to me, to sound either ironic or facetious, meaning kind of fake. And I do not believe that was its effect in the ancient Chinese. Whenever I have substantially added to the wording of the original in translation, I have enclosed the added words in brackets. So he's very um, conscientious. He's a highly moral person, it seems, and conscientious um, to preserving the original as much as possible and even indicating clearly when he's adding to the original and how some other translations may have rendered the original. Going on, needless to say, for all my zeal to render the literal meaning of the original, I could not do so until I had first decided what it was. And in this sense, my translation is as much an interpretation and as tentative in many places as any other, meaning he couldn't render the literal meaning until he could first figure out what the original or literal meaning was. (laughs) And I must say that in all my years of having uh, first and second books translated to Japanese, um, Romanian, uh, Chinese, Taiwan, Chinese, uh, not one translator has asked me for clarification. I guess they understood it all. Uh, They don't know, they don't understand it all. So we really do lose a lot in translation. He goes on, uh, Whaley, his colleague, Arthur Whaley, remarks that translations of the Zhuangzi often tend to be, quote, translations of the commentaries rather than of the text. Because, quote, the text itself is so corrupt as to be frequently quite unintelligible. True. The original. In his own study of Zhuangzi, Whaley attempts to get around this difficulty by translating at times not from the Zhuangzi itself, but from parallel passages found in the Huainanzi, a work of the 2nd century B.C., very old, already mentioned, and the Li, Li, Liazi, Liazi, a Taoist work of uncertain date, whose text is more intelligible. These passages in the Huainanzi and Liazi may in fact represent the original version of passages that later became corrupt in the Zhuangzi itself. Mm. On the other hand, they may represent emended, meaning modified and uh, heavily edited, and rewritten versions created by the compilers of the Huainanzi and Liazi because they could not understand the Zhuangzi text itself, themselves. <laughs> what then are we to do with the passages that, in Whaley's words, are, quote, quite unintelligible? And he says, if they are not to be omitted entirely, emendation uh, would seem to be the only solution. What to do with them? But here we must note some of the dangers involved danger because he wants people to understand the original and not all translators have that same commitment to the original just as many students uh, distort their teachers teaching first of all he goes on is the passage in fact really unintelligible Hmm. just because you can't get it doesn't mean it's ungettable often he goes on in the case of ancient chinese A different punctuation of the text or a different interpretation of the words makes sense of what at first glance seemed nonsense. In the Han Feizi translation I did some years ago, another text, I allowed myself at one point to be awed by the flat assertion of the Chinese commentator I was following that the text made no sense as it stood and I adopted the emendation he suggested It has since been pointed out to me that the sentence makes perfectly good sense when properly understood, and can even be supported by examples of the same usage in other works of the period. In this case, the commentator was too quick in emending, and I too uncritical in accepting his judgment that emendation was necessary. And again, emendation. Uh, Definition? Here, let me see. Emendation. That's what she said. Emendation. Hmm. Thank you. The process of making a revision or correction to a text. So you can say that all translation is somewhat emending or amending, uh, but this is particularly cutting stuff out and putting stuff in. Um, and in that case, um, the, the commentator he was following didn't understand that he didn't understand. 
didn't realize he didn't understand, and was so quick to say, oh, it doesn't make sense. And it was because he didn't have the key to making sense. <laughs> so we see lots of people doing that, lots of ways. Very few Earth humans can accept how little they understand. You know, I accept, I know nearly nothing, I think, absolutely, in terms of universal metaphysics, in terms of seven-dimensional all, the all of, of this octave. How much do we know? How much do we know about self, or past, or purpose, or path, or goal, or um, cosmological basis, you know, teleology, the purpose for which we exist or we have experience? Uh, we can talk about it. It's an extremely shallow understanding we have. So <laughs> that, to me, is um, not a problem because it's true. And it doesn't mean, um, you know, I'm an idiot. It just means that uh, I have a lot further to go. Um, and even beings uh, in eighth density are nowhere near finished. They haven't become absolutely infinite. They might have become logoic, but that's not the end either. So, uh, acknowledging how little one knows and how partial one's understanding of everything, anything, um, is very helpful. Um when it's true, which is nearly always the case. Again, he goes on, again, what seems like a garble in the text may be unintelligible only because we lack sufficient knowledge of early Chinese society, customs, or religion. So, what seems uh, crazy? It doesn't make sense. Well, Baba, you don't know. So, why don't you try looking deeper if you wish to know? It, it's, anyway... He goes on, this is apt to be particularly true with a text like the Zhangzi, which makes such frequent reference to folk beliefs and scenes of everyday life, 2,300 years ago. Let me give an example, not from the Zhangzi, but from the Confucian classic known as the Shu Jing, or Book of Documents, traditionally supposed to have been compiled and edited by Confucius himself, which it may well be. In the first section, the, quote, canon of Yao, the Book of Yao. Near the beginning, there's a passage describing certain ritual and governmental activities associated with each of the four directions. Four times, a brief sentence appears that begins, quote, its people, dot, dot, dot. Thanks to information gained from the study of Shang period oracle bone inscriptions, writings on oracle, on turtle, turtle shells, generally, turtle shell bones, from the Shang period, which is way back um, in, you know, earlier than 1000 BC, I think. We now know that the characters that follow the word people, Ren, are the names of deities associated with each of the four directions and of the winds of those directions. But by the time the first commentaries on the text were written by Chinese fellows, <laughs> you know, uh, hundreds of years later, this fact was no longer known, and the commentators <laughs> from 2,000 years ago had no choice but to struggle valiantly in an effort to interpret the names of the wind gods as verbs or adjectives, descriptive of the people of the four directions. Now we know the solution to the riddle, their struggles seem pathetic. But the point to note is that because of the sanctity of the text, uh, as it was to the early Chinese commentators, um, and compilers, they did not resort to facile emendation, meaning they respected the text, and so they didn't make simplistic uh, editings. And so the riddle continued to remain soluble, meaning it could be solved, because they didn't butcher the text. They had respect for it, until such time as the right data could be brought to bear on it. With examples such as these in mind, one may well shudder, at the very thought of emendation. Emendation, in this sense, doing surgery on the text, cutting stuff out, putting stuff in, and saying, this is the text I'm working from. This is really hugely disrespectful. And I guess sometimes these guys uh, do it, <laughs> and no one knows. And uh, the Westerners reading the text think that, um, mm, that they're reading something... Uh, of the original when it's absolutely not, and it's been added by, uh, you know, <laughs> commentators hundreds of years later, 
or Western translators who are working with the text even. Going on, nevertheless, there are cases when emendation seems justifiable. Like Theobald's famous, quote, a bubbled green, a bubbled of green fields. Emendation in Henry V, okay. They may or may not represent what the author wrote, but they make beautiful sense of what was gibberish before and allow us to get on to the next line. Translators have a time clock and uh, deadlines and payment, and so the longer they spend, the less they're getting paid for their time. Going on, moreover, with a few notable exceptions, such as the closing sentence of section or chapter 2, these garbles in the Zhuangzi, as the readers will see from my notes, appear for the most part not in places that are crucial to the overall philosophical import of the text, but in the anecdotes or homely analogies with which Zhuangzi illustrates his ideas. We'll see a lot of that later. Even if emended or interpreted incorrectly, therefore, they will not greatly affect the meaning of the whole. The real peril here is that commentators who are inclined by nature to emendation, they are like the uh, arrogant surgeons, are seldom content to emend only those passages that are real gibberish, but giddy with their own ingenuity. Oh, I am so clever. Go on to suggest ways to improve, quote, improve the reading of what was already intelligible, albeit a bit backward or awkward or strange and unintelligible to them. <laughs> That's human oh so human. The translator, if he is not to be seduced into following them into this beguiling but indefensible pastime, must constantly ask himself, is this emendation necessary? <clears throat> Should I do butchery again and cut stuff out, put stuff in uh, willy-nilly because I can't understand what's going on here? And so rather than say, I can't understand, <laughs> the statement is, you're, un you're gibberish. Your talk is nonsense. Oh, that's bullshit, and you know it. Not, uh, I don't understand what you're talking about, because I, I'm not somebody who cares to learn about these things. <laughs> so I'm incapable of comprehending what you're saying. That's not commonly stated. So there's huge dis intellectual dishonesty, or dishonesty, here on planet Earth. That's why they keep repeating. Ross said, the paucity of honesty, poverty, like beggars. And so that's, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you live in self-deception, you will be overlorded by clever deceivers. What else? So, that's the situation we see today. Going on, as I trust I have made clear, Burton Watson says, the Jansa confronts the translator with countless passages in which, in order to make sense, he must choose from a wide variety of interpretations and or suggestions for emendation, more probably than any other full-length text of ancient China. And, of course, critics may in turn question each of his choices if they feel it was not wisely made. So translators are facing the academic uh, critical community, the academic community of critics. And so nobody, there's no, there's no poverty of uh, criticism, just a poverty of honesty. There is no end to this game he says. In the note on bibliography at the end of this introduction, <clears throat> I mention briefly the commentaries and translations that I've drawn on, but the result inevitably represents my own interpretations of the text and will not be quite like that of anyone else. With a work of such difficulty, there can never be anything like a definitive translation, because there is no such thing as a definitive interpretation. And so uh, he concludes, every translator who takes up the text will produce his own zhongzi, and the more that are available for the reader to enjoy and compare, the better. So he thinks. But there's no definitive translation because there's no definitive interpretation. Same thing with all metaphysical concept. There's no definitive explanation of karma, or samadhi, or jhana, or nibban, or um, ahamkara or Aham Vichar, you know, Ramana Maharshi's teaching of self-inquiry, or Gautama's teaching of the goal, or teachings of meditation and, and states of mind, or the principle of karma. There's no definitive um, teaching on it, 
there are only levels of development of the speaker and then levels of development of uh, the interpreters or our, comp- or our own capacity to comprehend. And so we may understand karma in a certain way today, and as we grow or if we learn and grow, um, our understanding 10 years from now may be significantly different. Um, Ra talking about forgiveness as applying akin to the break of karma and karma like um, entropy, the, um, the 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 condition or state uh, of an object or or a process to continue in its way um, without uh, inter- when there's no interference or energy input, the tendency of a system or a process to continue its way. So karma repeating or karmic seeding, continuing generation of karma, this kind of thing. And forgiveness, in this case, putting a break to it, in some sense, <laughs> to some degree. Um, that's one view, and we don't even know what it fully means. And so it would take a whole lot of back and forth to try to figure out deeper levels of, of significance. And then there are others talking about it. And so, um, the path, the comprehension is very, <laughs> Ross said, something like wisdom is a rather lonely matter. Comprehension is a very solitary work um, because uh, no matter what anyone else says in, in accord with the, what they believe or how they interpret, um, our interpretation or reception and um, assessment version of what they're saying is quite subjective and uh, variable and subtle and um, people commonly don't hear what they're being told or even then turn the meaning in ways that they don't recognize or turn it and don't recognize they are modifying the meaning. Somebody says something and we don't, we interpret it a certain way I remember talking to some guy in Bali when I was doing a seminar and I said something like um, the mind is very tricky or the mind is sort of deceptive or complicated and he said oh yeah the ego is that way I I remember I said the mind is complex and he said or the mind is tricky and he said something like the ego is complex or ego is tricky I didn't talk about ego I said mind (laughs) why you put, put in ego because when I say ego, he thinks mind. Or when I say mind, he says ego. And so when I say mind, I don't mean ego. When he hears mind, he thinks ego because that's where he's at. <laughs> and I didn't say there was such a thing as ego. I would say there isn't. Like raw, like Buddhism. Very straight up understanding. Doesn't mean there's no sense of self, it means there's no substantial, um, enduring core identity. Even Ross said, when they go to seventh density, they drop identity and memory. So obviously, it's not real. It's it's apparently real. It's experientially real for sure. But it's the sense of self. A sense of self is not a self. It's a sense of subjective, fixed identity, and it drops when one goes to seventh density. But I, but he heard ego when I said mind, and that's you know. If I didn't, if he didn't say it, I wouldn't have known that's how he heard it. <clears throat> that happens all the time, actually, all the time. And so, <laughs> he common people commonly hear what accords with what they believe they know. What they quote know is commonly um, their modification of what they've heard. So, understanding is not of your density. Uh, Yet, it's critical. Uh, there's so much confusion that is unrecognized. and it only, But it is useful to ask questions because that exposes how confused we are. <laughs> We're more confused than the question because commonly we can't even formulate a clear question. So the work of just formulating a clear question uh, goes some part towards uh, discovering the answer. Many answers, in fact. So it's good to... Um, speak uh, when one is confused to ask questions to refine the question to find answers
Anyway, uh, top of page 43, getting close to the end of this intro. He goes on, as I have said, much of the Duangsi consists of anecdotes, often two or three anecdotes in a row, that illustrate the same general theme and appear to be hardly more than different versions of a single story. In these anecdotes, a variety of historical and semi-historical personages appear, as well as a delightful assortment of gods, mythical heroes, and talking trees, birds, insects, and other creatures. <clears throat> One such historical figure, the logician philosopher Hui Shi or Hui Zi, um, uh, is white, white, or white horse. A very interesting kind of um, philosopher whose basis was logic uh, and semantics, words and, and logical process. Uh, so Hui Zi, who seems to have been a friend of Zhuang Zi, always represents the same viewpoint, that of, quote, intellectuality as opposed to imagination, as Whaley puts it. You can also say uh, duality <clears throat> and, and materiality as opposed to unity, non-duality, and um, uh, multi-dimensional spiritual awareness or fluidity, uh, conceptual um, relativism. Words mean very different things to each person, actually. And people don't recognize it because they use the same words, but they don't realize uh, one word means um, ten things to ten people, actually. And there's some common ground, but there's a lot much that isn't. So, intellectuality as opposed to imagination. I don't think that Zhuangzi is about imagination. He's about non-duality. He's about freedom, and he's about multidimensionality. <clears throat> he's about um, uh, unity of relative and absolute. The the very mysterious nature of, of phenomena and the unreliability of mind, of concept, of definition, of designation. That, that mind is unreliable. Phenomena, you know, uh, are not as they appear. Things are not as they appear. Nor are they otherwise. I think that's where Jones is at. Not just some kind of creative imagination. He's a <laughs> mystical fellow. And <clears throat> the typical, a very common uh, analogy he said, you know, Am I Zhuangzi dreaming I'm a butterfly? Am I am I a butterfly dreaming I'm Zhuangzi? Or am I Zhuangzi who last night had a dream I'm a butterfly? Last night I had a dream I was a butterfly. But I don't know if right now I'm the butterfly dreaming I'm Zhuangzi. True. So I went to the Crystal City last night. I went to another planet. I uh, experienced... Um, being a portion of a vast spherical self or sense of me. Uh, was that fantasy? Was it real? It might, <laughs> you, you know, uh, one should be careful and uh, of dogmatism. <laughs> one should not be dogmatic in third density. <clears throat> uh, so, meaning it's not helpful if you want uh, mind development and continued seven chapter development it's good not to be dogmatic. It's good to be a good listener. It's good to listen, to know how to listen well. He goes on. Uh, but there is no consistency in the variety of viewpoints which the other figures are made to expound, so they keep changing their positions. Thus, Confucius sometimes preaches conventional Confucian morality, while at other times he speaks in the words of a true Taoist sage. And even Zhangzi himself appears on occasion in the role of the convention-ridden fool. Got to be <clears throat> very free to really not take yourself seriously. <laughs> yes, I'm a fool. No, I'm a wise man. Who cares? Drop them. You can drop them both. You know? Anyway, <laughs> the reader must learn to expect any opinion whatsoever from any source, to savor the outrageous incongruities, and to judge for himself which of the opinions offered represents the highest level of enlightenment. And that's that point of when he says something, was that meant to uh, uh, indicate an ideal to which he recommends we strive or he himself holds in high esteem or something he's being critical of? 
many times it's not even clear, which is very another way of um, breaking down dogmatic opinionatedness and, and uh, judgment. In closing, Burton Watson says, I may add a word on the translation of certain key philosophical terms in the Zhangzi. The term Tao I've translated throughout as the way in order to remain consistent with the practice adopted in my earlier translations from other Chinese philosophers of the late Dou. It's perfectly true that Zhangzi means by this word Tao something quite different from what Mozi, Shunzi, Hanfeizi meant, meaning other schools, philosophers, using the same word Tao. But all of them use the same Chinese word, and the reader may easily judge for himself how they interpreted it by observing the ways in which they used it, meaning what do they mean by the word Tao based on how they're applying it in, in the further um, philosophy they're offering. For the same reason, he goes on, I have rendered ten as heaven or heavenly in nearly all cases. Zhongzi uses the word to mean nature. And that, by the way, is a very interesting linkage where heaven can be understood as nature or nature can be understood as the logos because it's, there's no uh, choice-based dis- uh, distortion of it. it. It proceeds in accord with its own Tao without the limitations or the uh, interference of self-conscious human mind-level distortions generated by, um, you know, lack of seven chakra development. It just means that animals follow their natural course, animals and plants. So heaven and nature and logos are similar. So Zhangzi uses the word to mean nature, tian, or heaven, what pertains to the natural as opposed to the artificial or as a synonym of uh, for the way, for Tao. This too is very different from what Mozi or Shunzi meant by the word Tian, but again the reader may judge the differences for himself. In nearly all cases I've rendered the word De, like Tao De, Tao De as virtue, except when it has the meaning of a favor or good deed done for someone. <clears throat> this word presents certain difficulties in Zhuangzi. Sometimes he employs it, meaning the word De, to mean conventional virtue, that is, virtue in the Confucian or Moist sense, in which case it has bad connotations. At other times, he employs it in a good sense to mean the true virtue or vital power that belongs to the man of Tao, Zhenren. Compare Weili's rendering of the title Tao De Jing, Tao De Jing as the way in its power. <clears throat> I prefer not to distinguish these two usages in the translation, because I do not wish to impose on the English a distinction that's not explicit in the original. So, uh, virtue, de, translated as virtue or power, also is extremely uh, metaphysical, uh, which I don't want to, I can't get into now, but it's very uh, important, <laughs> the word de. It's very much akin to intelligent energy, I'd say. Prana, chi, ki, um, light, with a capital L, <clears throat> it's it's the power manifestation, the power that um, is manifest by logoic expression um, of, of light. The logos expresses light. Action of free will upon love generates light. That light origin of seven rays is the, in my view. And uh, as a person is more developed in the seven rays, seven chakras, um, they carry more power. There's more power court or a higher quality of pranic flow, a higher vibratory frequency, vibration of prana through the nadis, through the chakras, manifesting however, or even not manifesting, but as the state of mind-body-spirit, mind-body-spirit complex. So it's a very important word. To... He says, the reader should keep in mind, incidentally, that the words virtue, the, and gain or to get, the, are homophones, meaning same sound, and this fact is the basis of frequent puns and wordplays, that is, the man of true Taoist virtue is one who, as we would say in English, has, quote, got it, (laughs) the as virtue, as zhenren de, the de being the virtue of a spiritually centered, developing person. That virtue, 
uh, is a form of acquisition. <laughs> what do they got? They got it. What do they got? They got, uh, they're getting with the Tao. They're more in harmony with, um, with Logos. As, you, as already mentioned, I render Wu Wei as inaction and Yu as to wander or wandering. In addition to inventing legendary figures with amusing and often significant names, Zhangsa invents a variety of mysterious and high-sounding pseudo-technical terms to refer to the way, the Tao, or the person who's made himself one with it, meaning Zhen Ren. I've given a literal translation of such terms and capitalized them in order to indicate their special character. It's brilliant to do that. And um, not that many others um, know enough to do. So, you know, the quality of teaching depends on the quality of the teacher. Quality of the translation depends on the quality of the translator. The quality of the translator depends on their spiritual development, mind, body, spirit, or particularly mind, the spiritualization of mind and the development of the, of the functions of mind, which includes morality, actually, commitment to moral values, which leads to a commitment to um, not butchering the original, ho-ho, and uh, respecting the teacher. So, some of his examples of capitalized strange terms. Uh, for example, Great Claude, Supreme Swindle, True Man. The reader need not puzzle over their precise meaning, since in the end they all refer to essentially the same thing, the inexpressible absolute. I used as a basis, and here we get to the real technicals, I used as a basis of my translation the Zhuangzi Buzong of Liu Wendian, Shanghai 1947, principally because of its magnificent legibility, meaning it's readable, though I did not always follow its punctuation. Right, So the original is unpunctuated. It would be impractical to list all the commentaries I drew on directly or indirectly. I mentioned by name in my notes the commentator I followed in questionable passages, meaning when he's translating a certain questionable passage, he um, <laughs> honestly explains whose commentary he's followed there. <clears throat> and the reader may identify the works by consulting the exhaustive bibliography of Zhongsa commentaries in Guangfeng's Modern Language Translation and Study from Peking, 1961. He, other, other sources he references here, some are Japanese. Uh, also, he consulted earlier English translations, Herbert Giles, 1889, James Lega, which uh, came out in 1963, but I believe is earlier. Yu Lan Feng, 1933, Arthur Whaley, 1939, Lin Yutang, also a big important person, 1948. And so, as an example of uh, Lost in Translation, page 47, he talks about Herbert Giles' translation from 18, from <laughs> what, 1889. Giles, who produced the first complete English translation, is very free in his rendering and again and again substitutes what strike me as tiresome Victorian clichés for the complex and beautiful language of the original. So Mr. Giles didn't even know that, or doesn't know that he's uh, taken over the text. In spite of his, quote, offensive literary tone, or offensive, quote, literary tone, However, he generally gets at what appears to me to be at the real meaning of the text. All right. Lega, whose translation appeared in 1891, is far more painstaking in re reproducing the literal meaning, but perhaps because of his long years of work on the Confucian texts, seems to miss Zhongzi's point rather often, and to labor to make common sense out of paradox and fantasy. Professor Ware, not Donald Ware, Ware's translation is marked by the peculiar terminology and unconventional interpretations characteristic of his other translations from early Chinese philosophy. This is Ware. For example, he describes Zhangzi as a member of the progressive, dynamic wing of Confucianism. <clears throat> Everybody got their two cents. And for this reason, and because it lacks notes or adequate introductory material, it's of questionable value. Then he goes through Yu Lan Feng's work. Lin Yutang's work, and uh, <laughs> in agreement with me, says, to my mind, 
By far the most readable and reliable of Chuang translations to date are those by Arthur Whaley, although unfortunately they represent only a fraction of the text. Readers interested in the literary qualities of the text should also look at the imitations of passages in Zhuangzi prepared by Thomas Merton on the basis of existing translations. So he gave his translation from previous translations, and um, that's his imitation, or that's his, you know, distillation. And some people who love Thomas Merton or love these different people um, find great benefit in reading their, quote, translations. So, all right. There's someone for everyone. They give a fine sense of the liveliness and poetry of Zhuangzi's style and actually are almost as close to the original as the translations on which they are based. <clears throat> so, again, the, tra- the copy or the, the quality of translation really depends on the spiritual maturity and skill and experience and development of the translator. And then he thanks D.C. Lao who uh, translated uh, Dao De Ching at one point in 63. So a lot of this stuff is really old, uh, from late 19th century, where it started, to the throughout the 20th century, particularly, you know, this book came out in 68. So it's all versions, uh, uh, translations, and um, commentaries before that. Now... Uh, that concludes <clears throat> reading of his introduction. And um, you can see what kind of person he is. After that, page 50 of the PDF is an outline of early Chinese history. Uh, I don't want to get into all of it, but we can see that um, Chinese history, at least according to his um, timeline, goes back about 5,000 years. 2852 BCE, so 2800 years before Jesus, Yeshua, you have culture heroes. And so these are mythical um, founders of Chinese culture. So Chinese culture goes back 5,000 years. Similar to Indian, Hindu, uh, probably, you know, I don't know where, how far Egypt and Babylon and Persia go, but we're talking about deep antiquity, but it's not that it's uh, <clears throat> not that long ago. <laughs> five thousand years is very little in the seventy-five thousand year cycle. So the point, one thing that's just interesting is on this, as I said, once civilizations or dynasties started, the Chinese dynasties started, according to this, about four thousand years ago, twenty-two fifty-five Xia dynasty. And uh, you have cycles of virtuous founder, degenerate terminator. <laughs> so dynasties are founded by virtuous initiators and, and um, progenitors and are crashed and killed by degenerate um, leaders. So degenerate leadership is a sign of the terminal phase of a dynasty or a nation or a civilization. So, uh, (laughs) make haste in preparation. Uh, This seems to be a time of degenerate degenerate terminators um, in positions of power, nationally, globally, all over the place. So, uh, that's how dynasties end. That's how nations collapse. That's how... 3D cycles end when there's such a mix of morality, polarity, levels of consciousness, as we have here with this composite 3D Earth population. Uh, Other matters that might be interesting, uh, the text here came a few centuries after what is called... um, the period of the hundred philosophers. Um, this is uh, the date from 551 to 233 BC, BCE. Um, again, similar to the time of Gautama in India and Mahavira the Jain in India and Heraclitus and some of those, I don't know, I guess Plato came later, the pre-Platonics. 
<laughs> classical Greek philosopher. Uh, <clears throat> so China and Greece and India were very active uh, or, or showed very um, active philosophical culture, intellectual culture. Very interesting why that is. <laughs> 2,500 years ago or so. Um, probably the beginning of one of these last uh, sub-cycles of the 3D master cycle. So, let's see. 50 minutes out here. Let me just see something. Let me try. <laughs> probably without commentary, I, if I can restrain myself, just to read through chapter 1. Because that's really the heart of this, is his words. So... Chapter 1, Free and Easy Wandering, Zhongzi, translated by Burton Watson. And I'm just going to try to read it right through without commenting, and so there'll be things we don't understand. Fine. But just uh, listen along if you wish. If you wish. So, Chapter 1, Zhongzi, Free and Easy Wandering. In the northern darkness, there is a fish, and his name is Kun. The Kun is so huge... I don't know how many thousand li he measures. He changes and becomes a bird whose name is Pung. The back of the Pung measures I don't know how many thousand li across, and when he rises up and flies off, his wings are like clouds all over the sky. When the sea begins to move, this bird sets off for the southern darkness, which is the lake of heaven. The Universal Harmony, a text records various wonders, and it says, When the Pung, this fish who became a bird, journeys to the southern darkness, the waters are roiled for 3,000 li. He beats the whirlwind and rises 90,000 li, setting off on the six-month gale wind. Wavering heat, bits of dust, living things blown about by the wind, the sky looks very blue. Is that its real color? Or is it because it's so far away and has no end? When the bird looks down, all he sees is blue, too. If water is not piled up deep enough, it won't have the strength to bear up a big boat. Pour a cup of water into a hollow in the floor, and bits of trash will sail on it like boats. But set the cup there, and it will stick fast, for the water is too shallow and the boat too large. If wind is not piled up deep enough, it won't have the strength to bear up great wings. Therefore, when the Pung rises 90,000 li, he must have the wind under him like that. Only then can he mount on the back of the wind, shoulder the blue sky, and nothing can hinder or block him. Only then can he set his eyes to the south. The cicada and the little dove laugh at this, saying, when we make an effort and fly up, we can get as far as the elm or the sapan wood tree. But sometimes we don't make it, and we just fall down on the ground. Now, how is anyone going to go 90,000 li to the south? If you go off, and uh, that's the end of their quote, he goes on, If you go off to the green woods nearby, you can take along food for three meals and come back with your stomach as full as ever. If you're going a hundred li, you must grind your grain the night before. And if you're going a thousand li, you must start getting provisions together three months in advance. What do these two creatures understand? Two creatures being the cicada and little dove that laugh at the pung bird. What do these two creatures understand? Little understanding cannot come up to great understanding. The short-lived cannot come up to the long-lived how do I know this is so? The morning mushroom knows nothing of twilight and dawn. The summer cicada knows nothing of spring and autumn. They are the short-lived. South of Chu, there is a caterpillar that counts 500 years as one spring and 500 years as one autumn. Long, long ago, there was a great rose of Sharon. Now, this sounds a little bit off, but... Long, long ago, there was a great rose of Sharon that counted 8,000 years as one spring and 8,000 years as one autumn. They are the long-lived. Yet, Pengzi alone is famous today for having lived a long time 
and everybody tries to ape him. Isn't it pitiful? This is a mythical character. <coughs> Among the questions of Tang to Chi, this is a dialogue of other characters. Among the questions of Tang to Chi, we find the same thing. In the bald and barren north, there is a dark sea, the lake of heaven. In it is a fish that is several thousand li across, and no one knows how long. His name is Kun. There is also a bird there named Pung, with a back like Mount Tai, and wings like clouds filling the sky. He beats the whirlwind, leaps into the air, and rises up ninety thousand li. Same as the other guy. Cutting through the clouds and mist, shouldering the blue sky, and then he turns his eyes south and prepares to journey to the southern darkness. This is You can see how the text <laughs> is duplicated similar. The little quail laughs at him, saying, Where does he think he's going? I give a great leap and fly up, but I never get more than ten or twelve yards before I come down fluttering among the weeds and brambles. And that's the best kind of flying, anyway. Where does he think he's going? End quote. Such is the difference between big and little. Therefore, <clears throat> a man who has wisdom enough to fill one office effectively, good conduct enough to impress one community, virtue enough to please one ruler, or talent enough to be called into service in one state, has the same kind of self-pride as these little creatures. Song Rongzi would certainly burst out laughing at such a man. The whole world could praise Song Rongzi, and it wouldn't make him exert himself. The whole world could condemn him, and it wouldn't make him mope. He drew a clear line between the internal and the external, and recognized the boundaries of true glory and disgrace. And, but that was all. As far as the world went, he didn't fret and worry, but there was still ground he left unturned. Lietze could ride the wind and go soaring with the cool and breezy skill, but after fifteen days he came back to earth. As far as the search for good fortune went, he didn't fret and worry. <clears throat> he escaped the trouble of walking, but he still had to depend on something to get around. If he had only mounted on the truth of heaven and earth, ridden the changes of the six breaths, and thus wandered through the boundless, then what would he have had to depend on? Therefore I say, the perfect man has no self, the holy man has no merit, the sage has no fame. Yao wanted to concede the emperor, the empire to Shu Yao. When the sun and moon have already come out, he said, it's a waste of light to go on burning the torches, isn't it? When the seasonal rains are falling, it's a waste of water to go on irrigating the fields. <clears throat> if you took the throne, the world around would be well ordered. I go on occupying it, but all I can see are my failings. I beg to turn over the world, I mean the empire, to you. Shu Yo said, the one he's talking to about offering the empire, quote, You govern the world, and the world is already well governed. Now, if I take your place, will I be doing it for a name? But name is only the guest of reality. Will I be doing it so I can play the part of a guest? When the tailor bird builds her nest in the deep wood, she uses no more than one branch. When the mole drinks at the river, he takes no more than one bellyful. Go home and forget the matter, my lord. I have no use for the rulership of the world. <clears throat> Though the cook may not run his kitchen properly, the priest and the impersonator of the dead at the sacrifice do not leap over the wine casks and sacrificial stands and go take his place. <laughs> this is straight from 2300 years ago. Though the cook may not run his kitchen properly, the priest and the impersonator of the dead at the sacrifice, which is ritual, person at ritual performance, do not leap over the wine casks and sacrificial stands and go take his place. Jian Wu said to Lian Shu, quote, I was listening to Jie Yu's talk, big and nothing to back it up, going on and on without turning around. I was completely dumbfounded at his words, no more, th no more end than the Milky Way, wild and wide of the mark, never coming near human affairs. So he's criticizing Jie Yu's talk to Jian Wu. 
okay? And, <clears throat> you know, it's actually Jian Wu saying to Lian Shu about the other guy's talk. And the guy he's talking to said, what were his words like? And then we'll have this issue of, did he say stupid words, or is this um, Jian, uh, Lian Shu not understanding what's going on? Or the other guy, the guy who's criticizing him. Is he rightfully criticizing him? Or is he confused and criticizing somebody whose level above is above his own? So that's why the other asks, what were his words like? And now we say. And so, Jian Wu replies, he said that there's a holy man living on faraway Gushi Mountain with skin like ice and snow and gentle and shy like a young girl. He doesn't eat the five grains, but sucks the wind, drinks the dew, climbs up on the clouds and mist, rides a flying dragon, and wanders beyond the four seas. By concentrating his spirit, concentration of, of numa or chi, or prana, he can protect creatures from sickness and plague and make the harvest plentiful. I thought this all was insane and refused to believe it. And Lian Shu smashes him and says, You would! We can't expect a blind man to appreciate beautiful patterns or a deaf man to listen to bells and drums. And blindness and deafness are not confined to the body alone. The understanding has them, too, as your words just now have shown, meaning understanding can also be blind and deaf. This man, with his virtue, with his this virtue of his, is about to embrace the ten thousand things and roll them into one. Through or though the age calls for reform, why should he wear himself out over the affairs of the world? There is nothing that can harm this man. Though flood waters pile up to the sky, he will not drown. Though a great drought melts metal and stone and scorches the earth and hills, he will not be burned. From his dust and leavings alone, you could mold a Yao or a Shun, mythical god-kings, 5,000 years ago. Why should he consent to bother about mere things? And next passage. A man of Song who sold ceremonial hats made a trip to Yu, but the Yu people cut their hair short and tattooed their bodies and had no use for such things, ceremonial hats. Yao brought order to the people of the world and directed the government of all within the seas. But he went to see the four masters of the faraway Gushu mountain, quote, and in brackets, and when he went home, north of the Fun River, he was dazed and had forgotten his kingdom there. <laughs> Hui Zi said to Zhang Zi, this is how we're going, <laughs> jump section to section here. This is just straight text, uh, goes to a lot of non-secretaries or takes some leaps in different directions. Hui Zi said to Zhuang Zi, story, the king of Wei gave me some seeds of a huge gourd. I planted them, and when they grew up, the fruit was big enough to hold five pickles. Pickles is a something or other, not a pickle. I tried using it for a water container, but it was so heavy I couldn't lift it. I split it in half to make dippers, but they were so large and unwieldy that I couldn't dip them into anything. It's not that the gourds weren't fantastically big, but I decided they were of no use, so I smashed them to pieces. And again, this is Hui Chi, uh, which is a philosopher, I believe. It's put in here in the story. And Zhuang Zi said in reply, You certainly are dense when it comes to using big things. In Song, there was a man who was skilled at making a salve of balm for skin to prevent chapped hands. And generation after generation, his family made a living by bleaching silk in water. But they prevent, they don't have chapped hands. A traveler heard about the salve, and offered to buy the prescription for 300 measures of gold, or 100 measures. The man called everyone to a family council. For generations we've been bleaching silk, and we've never made more than a few measures of gold, he said. Now, if we sell our secret, we can make 100 measures in one morning. Let's let him have it. So, the traveler got the salve, and introduced it to the king of Yu, who was having trouble with the state of uh, Yu, the king of Wu, having trouble with the state of Yu. The king put the man in charge of his troops, and that winter they fought a naval battle with the men of Yu and gave them a bad beating, because they have the 
anti-chapped hands solve. A portion of the conquered territory was awarded to the man as a fief. The salve had the power to prevent chapped hands in either case, but one man used it to get a fief, fiefdom, a ter- territory, while the other one never got beyond silt bleaching, because they use it in different ways. Now, you had a gourd big enough to hold five picouls. Why didn't you think of mating, making it into a great tub so you could go floating around the rivers and lakes? instead of worrying because it was too big and unwieldy to dip into things. Obviously, you still have a lot of underbrush in your head. <laughs> Going on. Hui Zi said to Zhang Si, I have a big tree called a shu. Its trunk is too gnarled and bumpy to apply a measuring line to. Its branch is too bent and twisty to match up to a compass or square. You could stand it by the road, and no carpenter would look at it twice. Your words, too, are big and useless, and so everyone alike spurns them. Zhuangzi said, quote, in the story, Maybe you've never seen a wild cat or a weasel. It crouches down and hides, watching for something to come along. It leaps and races east and west, not hesitating to go high or low, until it falls into the trap and dies in the net. Then again there's the yak, big as a cloud and covering the sky, it certainly knows how to be big, though it doesn't know how to catch rats. Now you have this big tree, and you're distressed because it's useless. Why don't you plant it in not-even-anything-village, or the field of broad and boundless? Relax and do nothing by its side, or lie down for a free and easy sleep under it. Axes will never shorten its life. Nothing can ever harm it. If there's no use for it, how can it come to grief or pain? And that concludes chapter one. <clears throat> so, <laughs> if there's no use for it, how can it ever come to grief or pain? This is very much um, at the heart of a sort of Chongzi's Taoist um, detachment. So, and I'm not saying anybody should follow this or follow anything, <laughs> but uh, this is a perspective, and it's very um, sweet and useful in some ways, somehow, for some people, some cases. So anyway, that'll be it. <laughs> That's all for today. Uh, next week, I will do some commentary, as best I can, on Chapter 1, Free and Easy Wandering. And uh, maybe we will get into Chapter 2, which is called Discussion on Making All Things Equal. So, I hope this was interesting and helpful. Please take good care of yourselves. See you next time, and good night.